You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, that was an interesting reading. It was interesting to me that we, we had... Uh, big ghastly events in both <laughs> in both readings well not so not so many ghastly events in novels but uh, ghastly apparitions and certainly uh apparitions and certainly in michael's a uh, uh well i was going to say you start off with a murder but actually that's your chapter two right yes yeah. i start off with moriarty being in, in, in uh, being tried for murder oh. ah, all right an, an entirely oh. different murder <laughs> well, one of the things I thought would be interesting to talk about it was machinery, because I agree that, uh, in a sense, all narrative is particular to the author and the author's universe and everything, but uh, authors also work not only in the real world that we live in, but they, they work in a fictional world, in a... Um, you know, they work in the world of the literature that they're kind of doing. And one of the things I like about Michael's work is that he's basically a, Victor, a, a faux Victorian author in a way. I think I've never seen, I think Michael's particularly good at taking the machinery of uh, the Victorian machinery and, and adapting it to modern times. I mean, and adding sex. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of yes. sex in Victorian <laughs> fiction. You just have adding to... overt sex, you mean? And and um, so it's red. <laughs> it's red, yes. Except, of course, for the Pearl, which is which is a Victorian book of nothing but sex. All right. Which, which tells the things that the Victorians were interested in, which you, unless you're into things like spanking, you probably don't want to read. <laughs> and Nalo, ta- uh, to me, uh, does a very interesting thing where she works with. Uh, a lot of fantasy and horror. Why are you laughing? Yeah, to been there. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that, that you've done a lot of work with taking, th- there's a machinery that goes with, with horror and fantasy. You know, we all know the machinery, the, the vampire stuff, the werewolf stuff, you know. Not uh, a whole lot has come out of the Caribbean, although I think the Caribbean is fairly rich. Certainly the zombie has entered the Western canon. <laughs> mm, from or the, some from the version thereof, yes. Or some, yeah, well, that's the version we know, right? <laughs> is there? But it seems to me that what you've tried to do is to take this, this machinery of um, um, sort of Caribbean folklore or, and, and sort of adds your own kind of twist to it. But I'm interested in how does that, uh, where does it come from? How much of it is made up and how much of it are you just taking? Um, As much as I need at any given point, um, the the father that she keeps referring to is um, Papa Bois. He is the um, Lord of the Forest in uh, Trinidadian um, mythology, the Trinidadian lore, but he's in Toronto, and at some point I'm going to have to figure out how that's possible. <laughs> so um, what it does, because I am often writing from where I live, which is got Canada. Hmm? He got a visa, and you know that in itself <laughs> nowadays is an issue. Um, I think it's going to have to have something to do with fractals and, and uh, math and physics, but um, Figuring that stuff out 
sort of makes the underpinnings of the fantasy very clear. The interesting thing about you say, talking about horror is that I, I don't read horror. I can't watch it. I, I just won't sleep. So I, I gave up trying a long, long time ago. Uh, and yet really creepy things do keep ending up in my stories. But it's not from a particular sort of deep grasp of, of the genre of horror. Interesting. Um, well, to me, the the baby with um, <laughs> with big hands is one of yeah. the <laughs> creepiest monsters. Uh, that's that's basically melted by the rain, or, or what's yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, is that is that something you made up, or is that something that kind oh, of floats yeah, in no. at you through folklore? I made I made it up. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Babies can be creepy. But the idea of a hate, <laughs> but the idea of a hate, a shape shifting uh, mm. hate, that's um, is that entirely your convention, or is that just something that's? Sort I think of it crept might be because the haint is is um, is American, so I'm going to have to look it up. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's uh, certainly black lore, but not from where I'm from. So right. uh, I'm which is where? Be in Are you from Trinidad? I'm from Jamaica, but lived in Jamaica, Trinidad, and Guyana, and have relatives all right. in all three. All right. uh, so I'm going to have to do some research. <laughs> I keep calling it a haint, but you know, I'm making a list of folks I have to go talk to. <laughs> just keep calling it a hate. It works beautifully. Excellent. But that is kind of an American Southernism more yeah. than the hate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Also, it interested me that um, uh, the idea of using dialect in fiction. Any any fiction writer, or most, at some point has to deal with this. It's like dangerous, poisonous stuff. And how do you deal with it? And I was particularly impressed with Michael's dealing with it because yeah. he deals with it through. I think that you sort of are able to get a sort of a, a uh, almost cockney or maybe a little Irish uh, uh, Victorian voice without there, there uh, all three accents and misspellings. I and just all like that. I don't use I, I use very few. Matter of fact, one of my books I did uh, I had a character that was from the heart of Brooklyn and spoke with a very bad Brooklyn accent, and I did like half a page of him speaking. Then I have my narrator say. But if I keep writing him the way he sounds, you won't be able to understand him. So I think I'll just go back to standard English. I have to imagine the way he talks, and then went back cause, uh, mm -hmm. because it was true. If I, it would be annoying to to keep writing him like that. Yeah, uh, that's what I do with the spellings yeah. when I'm I'm writing in Creole. It, it, I keep it standard spelling because right. it's just easier all around. Well, like, every writer uh, deals a with few it. hints of of, yeah. of, the, of the change in spelling, but then just. The reader will get what you're doing, so just go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you remember Mark Twain apologized oh, for it, God, and then I'm uh, so glad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember doing a little dialect in a book, and a character was speaking dialect, and then he said, "I will attempt more, no more dialect." <laughs> and just kinda, because it's it's uh, it's it's dangerous and difficult stuff. It's uh, you know it it's sort of. You, you want to be able to do a little bit of it. It's part of the character, but mm -hmm. you don't want to turn the whole thing into a, uh, a masquerade. or Yeah. A what I liked about the way Michael was doing it, because I think I heard not just different accents, but different sociolects. So, so I could hear working class, I could hear upper class, I could hear, is it, you almost seem to pick a refrain or, so that a character has a certain sets of ways of speaking. I don't know what it was, but it was working oh, really nicely. I am yeah. so much smarter than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I was doing that. Well, who was the, what was the Moliere play where the guy was delighted to discover that all of his life he'd been writing, he'd been speaking prose? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, um, I remember what it was you're talking about. He had, uh, Michael had this character. He would say, um, 
if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Which sounded average. It's almost like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I'm saying? yeah, yeah you know, it was yeah. one of these things. Well, I, just, I do try to give uh, each yes. my I try to give my character, if they're going to be around for a while, I try to give them a voice so you can differentiate which they are. Yeah, like a signature. Actually, the voice comes into my mind. I don't try to, it happens. The characters take over. I don't want to sound weird, but the characters take over and they take over my mind. This that is sounds weird. fantasy. Oh, okay. We're going to sound weird. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me ask a, another uh, question before I forget we get to talk about literature. What is the Greenwich Village trilogy? I read about this. I haven't read the books, but it sounded like a many many years ago, 1964, I think it was. Uh, uh, my best friend Chester Anderson, who was a truly great poet, and I was thinking tonight instead of reading my own stuff, I would read some of his poetry because he deserves it. But some other time. Anyway, he and I were best friends, and he got a contract to write a science fiction book, a Greenwich Village science fiction book. And he said, "You know, Michael." He said, I'm tired of making up characters. You're going to be the hero of this book. <laughs> and so there is a book called The Butterfly Kid, which I am the hero of by name. And he is the second, he's the narrator. And several other real village people are in it. And so after he wrote it, I went up to the editor at, at uh, um, Pyramid Books, who was uh, by that time had become a friend of mine because I'd done a couple of books for him. I said, you know, I want to get my revenge on Chester. I want to do a sequel to it. And I want him to be the hero of it by name. And so I wrote The Unicorn Girl, in which Chester is the hero. And um, <laughs> then a, f a mutual friend of ours named Tom Waters wrote a book called The Probability Pad, in which he's the narrator and Chester and I are the heroes. <laughs> and he brings in uh, Randall Garrett as a character also. And, and, you know, and, we, uh, and it became known as uh, The Buttercorn Pad. <laughs> and it, five or six different people have bought the options to put it out as, a, as one book, you know, all three books, and it's never actually happened, and I keep waiting for it to happen. Were they all published by the same company? All three were published by Pyramid. Pyramid. And uh, my book has been republished uh, at least once, and Chester's book has been republished. I'm not talking about reprinting. Republished at least twice. And Chester's is an underground classic, and mine is the only book I've ever written. If you judge by my emails, I get emails at least four or five times a year when somebody says, I'm glad I found you. I really love the unicorn girl. Have you written anything since? Ooh. <laughs> and, uh, and I reply, 37 books. Yes, <laughs> is that? <laughs> they can do email, but not Google. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, have you read any written anything worth reading since? Oh, <laughs> yes, bless them. <laughs> yeah. Anything real, anything? Well, that's so that's that was uh, became known as the uh, uh, the village trilogy, and uh, and they're still they're pretty good actually. But Chester's is really good. Yeah, I've I've become a fan tonight. I think it sounds very interesting. That reminds me a little. Everybody remembers that scene in Final uh, in Spinal Tap where they hear one of their songs on the radio and they all kind of listen, and then the the DJ at the end says. Well, we'll file that under. Where are they now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Talk about nightmares. My, my one regret in it, um, when I got the contract, the Butterfly Kid was finished. And Chester suggested, he said that what I should do is the first sentence of the book should be, Chester always exaggerates these things. And I should tell exactly the same story from my point of view. And I was scared to. It w that would really require craft and talent. And uh, at the time, I was not sure that I had either. 
So instead, the first sentence is, it was a year after the butterflies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Chester, wherever you are, I apologize. I'm sorry. All right. So, and, but you've written fantasy also, right? That was our fantasy. Well, uh, but yeah, I mean. Honest to God, the village does not have li little butterflies that appear from people's fingers and, and, and disappearing green monsters. That's fantasy. I know what you, the stories you've heard about the village, but trust me, that's fantasy. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, and, and Chester, for all the years I knew him, always seemed to be able to come up with a couple of those pills whenever he needed them. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, I also, I've been writing fantasy. Well, I haven't written it for a while. I've written fantasy short stories recently, but I haven't written any novels except mystery novels in, in the past uh, few years. And the forensic stuff, where does that come from? Research or? I had an editor who loved me. As a writer, I should say. She was married to a, a very successful banker and had no need of any other kind of love from me. But she, and, and I, I did a book on espionage. And she, this, she was my nonfiction editor. And I did a book on espionage and she liked it. She published it and she said, now why don't you do a book on, on uh, forensics? On, on, uh, and so I, I wrote a book for her called How to Solve a Murder, which was, uh, uh, you go into a house and somebody's dead, what do you do? You're a cop. You know, and and uh, it did very well. So I wrote a book called How to Try a Murder for the same publisher, right. which was what you do in murder trials, and it bombed. Mm. But then I did um, uh, a book on uh, an encyclopedia of murders, uh, well, of crime, a crime encyclopedia, and that did fairly well. And I just finished a book on, on forensics called Irrefutable Evidence, which I have the very first copy, well, I'll show you. <laughs> I have the very first copy here. It is not for sale yet. It will be shortly. Uh, I'll be glad to autograph it if you go out and buy it in your, uh, it is here. Did somebody steal my? <laughs> if you stole it, I will find you. <laughs> I know how. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, we know who was at the table. How to solve a book Yeah. We'll see. That's the one he was sitting around at the table. Yeah. Oh, oh it's, 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 a, it's a narrative. It, it's not deeply scientific in the sense of formulas and all that stuff, but it's a narrative history of who did what first, who, uh, where did fingerprints come from? Well, I mean, where did the science of fingerprints come from? Oh. Where, did, uh, uh, where did they figure out how to do DNA? And, and uh, uh, I have the last chapter, curiously enough, is on arson, and I talk about all of the mistakes they've been making for years on, on, on studying arsons and the fact that they put many people away for supposedly arson or even murder because somebody died in the fire who were innocent because they did not understand how fires actually burn. And just this week, in the New Yorker, the New Yorker has a very long article on a man in Texas who was executed for a crime he did not commit. He was accused of burning his children. Today. Right, that was a great story. And I have two other cases in here that are the same thing. Yeah. Including, and it, one of the things I, 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 there is, you have to understand people, uh, there, there was a, I think he was Korean, I, I, I'd have to look at the book quickly, but he would, an, an Asian gentleman anyway, who uh, his children, his daughter burned to death, and uh, the, the uh, American firefighters were saying, well, he looked so stolid, he just sat there, obviously he had no emotion. Mm, and he uh, was hurting. We don't understand the, the, the fact that he just sat there stolidly staring out was his emotion. He was probably absolutely crushed. 
and uh, and he's still in prison. He hasn't gotten out yet, although it's absolutely clear that he had nothing to do with his with his daughter's uh, hmm. killing. So. Anyway, that w one of the reasons I do it <coughs> is because uh, our criminal justice system is so screwed up, and there are so many people in prison that shouldn't be. Well, also, everybody that's in prison for any drug offense shouldn't be unless the offense in involved uh, something other than drugs, like you know, killing somebody to get the drugs or something. But uh, but that's my opinion. I'm entitled. I agree. Thank now, you. Well, I do. Uh, Nello, have you? Do you do any nonfiction at all? Um, I have written essays. I find nonfiction really, really difficult to write. Um, Why is that? Because with fiction, I can make up the argument and then write to it. And in nonfiction, it's just somehow harder to 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 pull that creative edge out of it. And, and I'm not interested in writing boring nonfiction, so <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> and I think the last nonfiction piece I wrote was an essay for Lawrence Schimmel in his um, anthology of essays called First Person Queer. Um, where I invented a word, uh, gender querulous. Gender what? Gender querulous. <laughs> gender querulous. Querulous. Yeah. Querulous. Yeah. Querulous. querulous. Charles Bam was querulous. Anyway, uh, querulous. <laughs> difficult person. As in, as in, mm, fretful. Fret demand. Yeah. yeah. Fretful. Okay. Yeah. Fretful. Yeah. Fretful. Good. And that was the title of it. Then I have to explain it to everyone because either they know the word querulous, but they don't know genderqueer, or they know genderqueer and they don't know querulous, or they know I neither. Um, it's not that good as a word, but I like it. <laughs> the the, the made-up words should not be in the title. Just yeah. would make a list. Rules for writers. Do not use a made-up word in the title. I have a problem with this, and it's a standard word. Uh, the editor, the publisher, called this irrefutable evidence. And my real feeling is that a third of the people in, uh, that speak English do not know what irrefutable means. Really? Even though we watch so much crime fiction? Well, irrefutable is not a word that's used in, in huh. crime fiction that much. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Either that, or I hope that people. I had. Oh, um, it's a Kurland book. I'll buy it anyway. You know. One of my novels, the title was supposed to be Griffon, and uh, the publisher nixed the title. Um, because they were afraid that no one would know what it meant, and what that was the title? Griffon, Spell it. Like G R I F F O N N E. Well, that's so wonderful. Like a griffin. Like a griffin. It's, it's the same root. Yes, it's, it's the same root, but it, it, it sure. means it means um, uh, mulatress, essentially, um, and it comes from when it comes from when we used words like like mulatto when we had sort of grading for for people who were who were mixed race, black, and something else, no black and white specifically. And so the publisher nixed the title because they said, you know, not only are we afraid people won't know what it means, they're we're afraid that if they can't, it's French, if they can't pronounce it, people don't want to look stupid. So they don't want to go into the bookstore and ask for something that they can't pronounce the name of. So uh, my editor and I were trying to come up with new titles. And I said, well, how about Hayella, which is what Griffon means. And right. they and said, oh, no, 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 that would be offensive. <laughs> <laughs> because they wouldn't know what it means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A friend of mine wrote a book called, I think it was called something like The Lighter 10% or something. Yeah. And she, she had, I guess that the editor didn't know what it meant because it went through without any... Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> editor is really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to, I, I, I was writing a book under a pseudonym and, and uh, 
the name I picked was a, a, a bodice ripper, and I wanted to use a woman's name because nobody's going to buy a bodice ripper that's written by a man, so I, I called it by Shelley Sherdlew. <laughs> Shelley Sherdlew was actually the nickname of a friend of mine in the village when I was living in the village, and the editor said, I'm not going to use that as a name. Everybody knows what Sherdlew means. Nobody knows what Sherdlow means. What does Sherdlow mean? Yeah. Sherdlow is, uh, in the old um, typesetting machines, Sherdlow is uh, the top line of the typesetting, instead of uh, Quirtlupe, is Etowan Sherdlow. Uh -huh. oh. And there was a science fiction writer that used to write into the name of Etowan Sherdlow. So I used Shelley Sherdlow. So uh, he refused to use it, uh, and he said, you need another name. So I turned to my then wife, and I said, what can I do as a name? And she took out, I didn't know she had this, she took out a rubber stamp, and she said, here, and she inked it, and she put it down, and it said, and I swear to God, it said, Jennifer Plum Bob Butterdish. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I, I, I put the rubber stamp over the manuscript instead, and I sent it in as Jennifer Plum Bob Butterdish, and without asking me, the editor crossed out the Bob Butterdish, which I suppose I'll use for another book, and it's published under Jennifer Plum instead of Shirley <laughs> Everybody knows what shirt Lou means. <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> well, let me ask this question. Uh, you went to Clarion. Mm. Now you're teaching at Clarion. Mm -hmm. Was Clarion your point of access to science fiction or to fantasy, or were you already um, working in that genre? I've been reading... Um, fantasy since I was a kid and science fiction since I was a teenager. Um, my my mom is a library technician. At that point, she was a library clerk. Um, we were living in, hang on, I got to see the school and go up the street, Jamaica. Um, I was probably 13. I don't know, I'm getting the details wrong. It's been a while. But she worked in the library, and I would come to the library after school, and um, at that point, they divided the library into adult reading and child reading, and she knew I was reading way above child re reading level, so she'd give me her, her library card. And I discovered the science fiction section of the um, uh, Kingston Public Library on Tom Redcomb Avenue in Kingston, Jamaica, and discovered um, Harlan Ellison's Shattered Like a Glass Goblin, uh, which, you know, was a big mindfuck for a middle-class Caribbean girl living in. <laughs> 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 um, and it was sort of sort of the next step over for, from this fantasy I'd been reading. I kept reading the fantasy and the epic tales that my dad was teaching a, in high school and I just added that's science fiction. anybody's ever said about Harlan. <laughs> yeah, probably. Now, what, <laughs> I don't know that story. What's, what's the idea of that story? I wasn't supposed to say that. <laughs> what's what? what what's, the, I, what's that story? I don't know that story. Uh, it's a short story he wrote about living in the hate, I think, about a, a, a young man from, so not from, you know, New York. Is, is that where the hate is? No, it's here. It's here? It's here? There you go. Failed geography. <laughs> but, but... That's not geography, that's culture. Yeah, that too. <laughs> coming from, uh, but boy, coming from sort of out of town and just getting swallowed up by, by that, uh, that life. Um, I, I had no idea what it was about, but it, it had... It it's had got magical words. He's very good. It's got magical yeah. words in it. it yes. Matter what it's well, yeah, exactly. So what's yeah. The, the magical or the science fiction element? Is it just a kid in Bohemia? Or yeah, is there pretty much. Other... Well, he turns into a glass goblin. 
Oh, okay. Which means he's very fragile. Ah. Very eldritch, but very fragile. And um, there was also a novel that had been made into a film, but this was, I was too young to see it when it came out. They recently did a remake of it, Andromeda Strain. Mm. Right. So I got to find the novel in the, in the library and, and tried to read it. I spent a lot of time as a, as a young teenager reading science fiction and not knowing what the hell any of it was about, but being fascinated. <laughs> well, of course, the, the Andromeda Strange was, wasn't considered, it wasn't published as science fiction, mm -hmm. but it was science fiction. Mm -hmm. Crichton actually was a pretty good science fiction writer, I thought, uh, you know, especially in that one. I if you like doctors. <laughs> yeah, if you like doctors. Now, that was, uh, that, was, that was a nice book. How did you, where did you begin in this? Did you break in through magazines or writing for? Um, when I was seven years old, I started reading. I, actually, I, I was a, called Adventures in Time and Space. And I went, I went, when I went to the Army, uh, my, uh, Healy's son was, became a good friend of mine. And he said, my father edited that book. But that's the first thing I read. And it had two or three actually incredible, mind-expanding stories in it. And I said, oh, science fiction, that's for me. And I started uh, reading every issue of Astounding that came out and every issue of Galaxy. And then, and then I had the misfortune to meet some science fiction writers when I was in the teens and become <laughs> friends with them, and I, so I started writing science fiction. I will tell you a story. Uh, Don Westlake, uh, a very good mystery writer who just died, who was a good friend of mine, um, started writing science fiction and switched to mysteries, and he wrote a, a, um, an editorial for a magazine talking about why science fiction was all crap and he wanted to write mysteries, and his, edit his agent at the time went over to him and said, oh God, Don, you've ruined your career. You'll never write again. You'll never sell it. But anyway, uh, I was at a party with him and my uh, good friend, uh, Tom Waters, who I keep talking about, uh, and Tom, uh, I introduced Tom to, to Don, and Don said, well, uh, what do you write? It was a writer's party, so you know, he said, what do you write? And, and Waters said, well, I Actually, I I'm writing pornography at the moment, but I hope to move up to science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and Westlake looked at him down his long nose, and he said, not up, over. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> but talking about Clarion, it was one of, at that sort of age, one of the first, um, the first time I realized you could actually go somewhere to be taught to learn to write science fiction was because I, I stumbled across a Clarion collection. It was when they were still doing the uh, ah. anthologies, and I had this copy that um, a friend of my aunt's had lent me. That was one of the Clarion anthologies, uh, and I I don't remember if it still had its cover when I found it. It didn't by the time I was done with it. How I never did give it back to the poor man. How much help do you think Clarion was to you in your in your aspirations? I think it sped me up because I'm I'm for many reasons, pretty slow. And I, I wrote more in that six weeks than I had in the six years previous. That's a important guess. Yeah, and just, yeah. I think it's, it gives you the stuff, if you're lucky, if you have a good clarion, but applying it, only you can do. So you, you end up with this, it's like someone get handing you this huge toolkit, only they upload it directly into your brain, which then hurts. And, um, <laughs> and then you go away and try to recover. <laughs> I like, I like, I, I like uh, teaching writing is like pointing somebody in a direction, but they have to do the walking or driving themselves. Mm -hmm. All you can do is point. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had a, a student um, not too long ago who struggled through the whole term, never turned anything in on time, and I, I kept contacting her and saying, look, I'm late too, like just stop running away from me. And she, um, at the end of the term, told me that this was the most difficult thing she had ever done, and I, I said that being a writer is going to be even harder. <laughs> you need to be ready for that. Yeah. Well, you do teach, I, I remember that now, you you teach several places, right? Yeah. And is that, do you like doing that, or are you just doing it to fill time, or, I mean, is it, do you think that's part of your, your spirit, what you're trying to do as a creative artist, is teaching as part of it? Um, the teaching is, um, students challenge you in the most vexing ways, um, I know I'll go on long rants about why you should never ever do something or other and somewhere in the middle of it it'll start sounding familiar to me and I think I think I did that in my last three <laughs> novels <laughs> 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 or they'll ask you you know why something or other and just trying to explain it really makes you think about it makes you think yeah. about it and then you want to go and write um, that's a lot of the value of teaching for me that in that very rare moment when a light goes on in someone's eyes, and you're never really sure what it is they've picked up, but they, their eyes turn inwards and they start to mutter and they go off with the pencil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that moment. But the teaching itself is, is quite, I find it quite difficult. And you do it, uh, where do you do it? Um, usually some kind of online forum, so I'm teaching at Humber College in Toronto uh, as we speak which uh -huh. is a correspondence program because I'm not on the ground long enough to teach it. But you've been anyway. a guest writer at several colleges, right? Like, uh, like done things like Clarion. No, I mean, at, at like where you're the, um, the writer in residence or... Only uh, once. Oh, and, really? And then they didn't require that I taught. Uh-huh. So not, not so That's much. That's a good deal. Yeah, I was pretty pleased. <laughs> so they make you interact with the students? Yes, I had to have um, my one meal a day in the graduate residence of this, you know, where they had these long trencher tables and they had their own chef. And it was um, University of British Columbia, and, uh, blackberries growing all around. So I'd wake up in the morning and get a bowl and go and pick blackberries for breakfast. It was so hard. It was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> hang out with grad students and talk to them about what they do. It, it was very nice. Now, w is it particular to science fiction or fantasy, or is it just um, fiction, narrative writing in, in general? I prefer teaching science fiction and fantasy. They're what I know. They're what I love. Um, a lot of the times people will ask for me as an instructor. Often it's because they're writing science fiction fantasy. Sometimes it's for other reasons. It's because you know they're queer and I'm queer, or they're they're of color and I'm of color. But the writing might not be much related to what I do, uh, and that's a little harder. Um, I'm I'm used to a very plot-driven form, so I have a question. Yeah bizarre question. I, a friend of mine who I will not name because he's not here to give me permission uh, was gay, is gay, but was gay back in the days when one did not talk about that. And uh, we figured that out because he used to keep bringing different nephews to parties. And one time I asked him, I said, uh, is it stranger for you? Is, it, is your life stranger because you're gay? And remember, again, this was the time when it was under the... You know, because you're gay or because you're a writer? 
Yeah. What and he did he said, say? Oh, my life as a writer is much stranger yeah. than many more people understand the fact that I'm gay. Nobody understands. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of my question for you. You're black and you're gay and you're a writer. Which of those do you find the most? Uh, I have a hard time teasing them apart. <laughs> I had a, a blessed moment, though. I, I mean, I listened to my friends who are writers or artists talk about how hard it is to get support from you know, friends and family. But my dad was a writer and an actor and a poet. And when I was trying to finish my first novel, I actually took some time off work to do it and had only two months and was struggling with you know the, the cognitive stuff. I have a couple of cognitive disorders and had have fibromyalgia and did not at the time know it. Um, so I was wasting, as far as I was concerned, wasting the two months. And at one point, um, I managed to get into writing trance and was working and my mother called me. And so it's your mom, so you're polite, I was talking. And at some point she said, I'm going to hang up now because you're working. And I said, mom, I'm not at work, remember I have the time off. And she said, no, I can hear it in your voice, you're writing. And I. It was just such a blessed thing because I, I listen to my that, friends yeah. talk and they don't get that so much. <laughs> At all, yeah. 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 Oh, that's yeah. cool. It's a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, Mom, I'm a writer. Writers would much rather talk on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> now I say that. <laughs> One definition of a writer is somebody who answers the phone on the first ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. The, I heard a thing. Um, I was talking to one of my old instructors. Uh, I had a writing course back in 63 when there weren't a whole lot of them. This was at the University of Louisville. And uh, the teacher was this guy, David Madden, who's uh, he's at Louisiana State now. But anyway, he was talking about the whole thing. He's a, considered a Southern writer. And, you know, and we were just talking about the whole thing of being you know, not just a writer, but a something writer, mm -hmm. uh, a Southern writer, a black writer, uh, you know, I mean, writer. and, you know, th that's always uh, a bit of a dance. It's, it's, yeah. it's not, it's more of a dance. Uh, I think it's much more, I, it's not much of a dance for me because I, I don't have to, I, well, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, I remember, um, well, it just seems like you, uh, you know, there's a way in which it, uh, like to be like a black writer enlarges things for you, but it also uh, it limits you in a way, or it, yeah. it, it limits the way people see you. So you always it seems to me like something you always are are fighting against. But I think it, it's been for years some, for, for since since the '60s or much earlier even. One of the advantages of being in this particular genre that we're all in is nobody cares whether you're gay or straight or black or white or green or, or a Martian. They would like it very much if you <laughs> were a Martian. But uh, you're completely open. Also, one of the things I quickly learned going to science fiction conventions back then is literally nobody cares what you look like. And I'm not talking just about color. I'm talking about people. I was a guy that was a very good science fiction fan and everybody loved him who had the side of his face blown off by a shotgun. Mm. And mm. He, and anywhere else he went, people kind of, in, in science fiction, we just talked to him. I mean, he's a guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was very liberating for many people, both as writers and as fans, that uh, it's you are accepted. It's also, of course, I lived in Greenwich Village, which is... Uh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> whatever you are, you're accepted. It's an advantage and a disadvantage because it makes it... Um, in there is that wonderful thing of, of, of 
it doesn't matter what you look like. But when it matters in the rest of the world, it's really, really hard to talk about it in science fiction because we try very hard in, in science fiction not to make people feel different. So when you try to address issues of difference, you become the problem. Interesting. And um, yeah. that's that's another interesting wrestle. But but yeah, it, it the the identification thing. On the one hand, I want to be identified for all the things I'm proud of about myself. On the other, I look at careers of. Um, there's a Caribbean writer named Carol Philip, yeah. whose books do very, very well when he's writing about Caribbean culture or black culture. But he has a wonderful book written about um, the Holocaust that you will not have heard of. Right. And yeah. so there is that there is that dance where in science fiction, I often get identified as a writer of Caribbean science fiction. And when I correct people and say they've misplaced the adjective, you know, I'm a Caribbean writer of science fiction. Uh, I once had a reviewer say, what's the difference? So <laughs> there is that. Yeah. The, the blindness is both an advantage and, and a disadvantage. And I'm not sure yeah. what to do about that. Well, I one, that. well, like off what Michael was saying, I remember when, when me and this old professor were talking, he said, I was always, you know, when you went into science fiction, I, uh, he said, I understood that because that was the, and, to some extent, it wasn't anymore. But he said that was the field where ethnicity and regionalism didn't exist. It was just, you know, we were earthlings, you know. And and that's kind of, you know, science of fiction us. has become a little more specific now, you know. And yeah. I mean, you're, you're part of the reason. Also, women started uh, writing mm -hmm. science. It was considered just, it's something that guys wrote. And so you never had to even think about it. The default mm -hmm. science fiction was mm -hmm. never... And and in in a way it was a kind of a strength. It it gave science fiction this it does, yeah. huge field to work in yeah. in its like adolescence. Yeah. But you you had to grow out of it at yeah. some point. And what, what I what I really love is that see when I started publishing uh, the response I was getting from a lot of the readers, um, many of them white and American was, Oh thank God <laughs> It's just the people really like the particularity, I think. When when you can talk about something very, very specific um, we're all knowledge geeks. We love that. Right. We love that you can bring that 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 sort of feel of a Victorian detective story into your work. That you can bring the language in, that uh, the clothing, um, and um, it's something I try to teach my students is that they've all got something that they're either obsessed with or that is really part of them that they can bring to the writing. Right. I'd get arrested. Not in science fiction. You wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so let's open this up. Somebody else has got to have a question or comment for these two, I'm sure. Questions? I, I have a question. I was wondering, because you... Real loud, so everybody can hear. Sorry, you said that you have trouble reading horror. Yeah. Right? And I'm assuming you mean, like, of the science, Stephen King style, right? So I was wondering if you have an easier time... If you're able to read something like Toni Morrison, who I think that you're, some of your ideas seem to remind me of her a little bit, although your writing style is very different. I was wondering if you can read that or that is still too creepy. I actually haven't read a lot of Toni Morrison. Um, I've read some, but, but I am a real science fiction fantasy fan, so um, that's... Um, She's considered sort of mainstream. She does have the occasional, you know, ghost and I well, and beloved, her writing. Beloved's is a ghost. Yeah, yeah. 
And her yeah. writing is gorgeous. Her language is just amazing. Um, but I haven't read that much of her. Yeah. I don't um, think ghost stories are not necessarily horror stories. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> on the other, I haven't read it. <laughs> on the other hand, um, when the video for Michael Jackson's Thriller came out, I had trouble watching it. I, I'm really craven when it comes to this stuff. I have it. It's very, very difficult. Uh, I can read dark fantasy for a bit, and then I have to put the book down and wait for daylight. I felt. Um, I'll just say this. I felt I was disappointed. Beloved, I, I like Toni Morrison, but I felt like she didn't really understand that she was writing a ghost story. So it was it was all too obvious from the beginning. It didn't have the the proper machinery, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the back. Uh, first, just a fan comment. I love the line about the rain popcorning off the helmet. <laughs> yes, that, Thank was, you. that was very good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, has your own writing ever kept you up at night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah. <laughs> has it ever popcorned off your helmet at night? Yes. <laughs> it, well, it, it's blown, you know, through my ears at night. I When I was at... Um, Clarion in 95, um, I went there afraid I would spend six weeks and not able to write a thing. <laughs> and um, the night that that broke, the story I wrote then scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, and it's in, it's in my short story collection. I think it's called Snake. But if you've ever been to the campus that Clarion was then on at um, Michigan State University, everything's really tall. Like everything that's natural is really tall. The trees, we have maples in Toronto. They aren't 17,000 feet tall. <laughs> the squirrels don't move really slowly and stop and stare at you. <laughs> they do at MSU. And <laughs> you're writing at 3 in the morning, and the breeze is blowing through those way too tall trees, and the trains keep coming by and going, woo, woo, woo. And the, you know the squirrels. You can hear the, their little claws climbing up the sides of the. And I scared myself silly, yeah. <laughs> Please. Actually, I wasn't interested in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, well, I mean, I love the stories, but I wasn't interested in it. What happened was um, someone. Uh, uh, who's the guy that wrote the series of books about uh, uh, the. Um, the revolution that was big a few years ago. Uh, anyway, he had written a, 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 a portion of a Sherlock Holmes novel, and somebody wanted to buy it. And then he suddenly sold this America series, and he couldn't write it. So my, I, I guess, hmm? John Jakes, thank you. And oh, I guess we had, had the same uh, agent or something, I don't remember whether that, but somehow or other uh, this, publisher, and it was, uh, it was a paperback house. That's why Jakes was so glad to get rid of it. We're talking about like a $1,500 advance, but at the time that was a lot of money to me, and they said, would you like to do it? And I said, uh, well, sure, I guess. So I, I would not use his portion of outline, obviously. I, re I did my own, and uh, uh, an editor named Bernie Geis, or an editor slash publisher named Bernie Geis, uh, was looking for somebody to do a ghost story that is ghost write a story by some famous person. I don't even remember who it was. And my agent submitted me for that. And um, uh, Bernie said, well, let's see something he's written. So my agent had this in his hand. And he said to Bernie, 
And Bernie said, forget that thing. I love this. This Moriarty, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. I'm going to pay you $100 million for it. So I immediately dropped the other publisher <laughs> who hadn't seen the new manuscript anyway. And I said, Bernie, you got a deal. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he took me out to lunch. And he closed the whole office. It's a small office. He had like, you know, 11 people or something. But he closed the whole office except for one person who was left to answer the phone. And we walked down the street go into the lunch, wherever it was, whatever restaurant it was, and he put his arm around me and he said, you are the finest prose stylist that we have ever had in these offices, and that's why I closed the office, to take you to lunch. And then there was a pause, and he put his mouth a little bit closer to my ear, and he says, you realize that won't make you a dime. <laughs> However, uh, the books, despite the prose style, the books uh, uh, did well, and so I'm still writing Moriarty. Hmm. Oh, which I didn't, I don't mean to imply that I don't enjoy them. I, I really like Sherlock Holmes, but I would not have done it were it not for this impetus. Okay. Of, uh, okay. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, we've stunned them into a stupor. We have. Thank you guys for coming. <laughs> uh, next, uh, what, uh, does anybody know the date for the next SF and SF? Where's Rena? <laughs> yes, get that information from me because we are doing this again in October and in November, but Rena knows exactly. I know Stan Robinson is going to be here. Ooh. In nice. October, yeah. Are you going to be around in October? Yeah, are you going to do our our Where are you uh, going? Carl Brandon thing <laughs> with us? Uh, We're doing lip no. no, no. Future announcements. Yes. Date yes. for October. Yeah. Um, well, let me uh, bring my mind back to the task at hand. Um, October tenth is our next next event. Uh, we're doing. <laughs> sorry, I'm like. Was cleaning I it was up. I was on something else. October 10th, we are doing an event with Litquake. Uh, many oh, of you okay. will remember our big uh, splash last year with our steampunk uh, panel. This year, we're very, very pleased to be doing a panel um, reading and discussion, the Q&A, book signing, book sales, and all. And we've titled it Color Me SF the science fiction worlds of Octavia Butler and Carl Brandon. And I hope everybody will join us for that. We're still working on our lineup so far. We have uh, Jewel Gomez uh, slated to read, and everybody else is working out travel schedules and such. October 17th, we have Kim Stanley Robinson and Eric Simons, who has written a very entertaining book called Darwin Slept Here. <laughs> and I think the discussion with that one will be great as well. It's our first foray into nonfiction. Yeah. And <laughs> so. uh, we figured it would be a good uh, person to team up with Stan. Yeah, mm. it'll be a very interesting conversation between those two. It's science. With the science aspect. And then. Um, uh, come Halloween weekend, uh, we're all participating in a big way with the World Fantasy Convention that's being held here in San, well, not here, but in San Jose, Bay Area, um, from the 28th through November 2nd. And a lot of information of that is online at 
worldfantasy2009.org. As vice chair, I'm encouraging all of you to sign up and come. Um, for instance, our podcaster, Rick Kleffel, for uh, the SF and SF events will be podcasting some of the panels from there. He's also conducted the Guest of Honor interviews. So we're trying to reach out and snare everybody with even the slightest interest in fantasy into attending because this could be a really great show. And then, finishing off our year for our author events, November 14th, we're going to be having Jeff Vandermeer and a special guest who has not yet confirmed with his publicist whether or not he'll be attending. So <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> so lots going on. So. Cool. Okay. Thank you. And thank you all. And thank you. And thank you, Nalo. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.